I was very interested in trying to understand why it was that people who were interested in the global south, the third world, you know, this vast area that goes from South America all the way to perhaps including, you know, the, the Oceania area. It's a very large swath of humanity. I was interested in how um, this area of the world disappears from, let's say, the 1920s to the 1980s. Um, during the 1980s, there was a lot of talk about the failure of the countries in this part of the world. You know, the third world is a place of failure. It's a place of famine. Um, it's a place of corruption and so on. And I was, I wondered why it is that as a people, we have amnesia about the great experiment that was um, attempted in that part of the world as a consequence of coming out of colonialism. And it was this experiment, which I called the third world project and tried to lay out what that experiment was and how it was destroyed um, in order then for the 1980s to say, do they know it's Christmas, you know, or we are the world and so on. Um, as if, uh, you know, places like Ethiopia or places like Zimbabwe, um, places like Myanmar, places like Paraguay, you know, as if these are always fated to be disasters. Um, where was the promise and where did that promise go? And so the darker nations in a sense is a story of promise and a story of possibility, but also a story of uh, borrowing from Franz Fanon. It's a story of assassination. In the 1980s, there was this um, sense that the third world is this place and it's this place of, of grief and sadness and you know, it was always about famine and so on. Uh, pictures of children, um, distended bellies, mosquitoes or, or, you know, some kind of animals surrounding them. Um, you know, love having been evacuated from those parts of the world, those territories. Um, and this place was a forbidding place, you know, to travel there was an adventure. You go to the third world, it itself is a safari. You don't go necessarily to see the animals, but the people themselves are dangerous or pathetic and so on. And, and I do remember there was, um, you know, there would be this NGO, this non-governmental organization or charity culture of doing things like, you know, sponsoring a child in the third world. You know, it got to that situation. But to my mind, to think of the third world like that was part of a political project to undermine it. You know, to, to say that, look, it doesn't have um, or it's never had its own path. It's never had its own journey. And so I was interested to say, wait a minute, the third world isn't that place, that place where you put your fantasy uh, of misery and desolation. The third world, in fact, is a project and that project is coherent and it comes out of the anti-colonial movement. And it's pretty rich with ideas. It's it's resonant with ideas, you know, and if those ideas could have had material reality, things might have been different. And that's the reason why the book starts with that phrase, the third world is not a place, it's a project. I just want to say briefly that I take first lines very seriously. And I think that, you know, there's a way emotionally that you have to capture the reader into the argument. And I spent a lot of time working out this 
theory that I just told you about, you know, that it's not just a place of misery and so on. And I tried to say, how do I encapsulate this idea in a sentence? And after a lot of effort, this was the sentence that appeared. The third world is not a place, it's a project. I mean, part of the reason why I found that sentence interesting is that it's it's immediately a little tantalizing. What do you mean it's a place? You know, it's not a place, it's a project. What does that mean? What is a project? You know, and then of course, I'm thinking, oh, wait a minute, guys. Listen, I've read my theory. It's project in the way that Jean-Paul Sartre writes about um, in his work on dialectics. You know, it's not just a project. I'm going to get out my knitting needles and my project is to make a sweater, knit a sweater. No, no, no. It's actually an approach to the world. It's a theory of the world. It's a pathway to make change, to advance from the contemporary moment to the future. It's that kind of thing. It's, it's in a sense, it's intellectually, um, you know, a, a decided, um, you know, a set of tactics and strategies with a program. And so, yeah, that's the flavor of it. It's not a place, it's a project. In many countries, particularly countries that had been the colonial rulers, there's a terrific, bizarre, but terrific amnesia about colonial history. In fact, every once in a while, almost punctually, there's a return of nostalgia in one sense, or a sense that, listen, it wasn't so bad after all. Um, in, in, in the United Kingdom or Great Britain or whatever you choose to call it, um, the figure of this nostalgia is Winston Churchill. Every once in a while, there's a kind of Churchill revival. You know, um, it wasn't so bad after all. Let's stick with Churchill. Churchill was a notorious racist. I mean, his the way he talked about the people of Africa, Asia, and so on is quite grotesque. When Churchill himself was under arms, you know, not before he was the the head of the Admiralty, um, he was out there in in the northern part of what is today Pakistan, near Afghanistan, and so on. Um, Churchill participated in the brutal slaughters of, of ordinary people. And so what was colonialism? Colonialism is a very simple uh, project. Colonialism is the use of extra economic force to hold people down, to take from them uh, very large parts of their social wealth, um, denying them the uh, wealth necessary to produce a kind of civilized life healthcare, education, and so on, denying them this, the less you consider people through a, a racist lens, the less you think people deserve. And therefore they are made to work as hard as any worker on the planet, if not more, sometimes using force, but they're denied the fruits of their labor, even more denied the fruits of their labor than workers in Britain or in France and other places. And that's colonialism. It was a ruthless political project. When India was eventually tossed out of, out of when, when Britain was eventually tossed out of India in 1947, it's pretty striking to look at the statistics on what later gets called human development in indices. I mean, the index of uh, literacy in India is stunning. You know, here's the British Macaulay in the 18th century talks about, you know, the need to educate the Indians. And there's a lot of talk about the civilization mission. The French are more aggressive with this concept of mission civilization and so on. But in India, when the British are tossed out after 300 years of rule, the literacy rate is 13%. That means 
uh, a stunning 87% of the people in India could not read or write. This is a much higher number than was there 300 years before, uh, before the British arrived. In other words, they, not, they didn't advance the human development of people, they reversed it. Um, and at the same time, derived enormous wealth uh, from India. So that, you know, basic calculations show that much of the industry in Manchester, in Birmingham, in Leeds, in Sheffield and so on, including if you go up to Scotland in Dundee, much of the industry was underwritten by the values taken out of colonized India. So you've colonized the place, you've denied people political freedom, you take a lot of their wealth and through ideas of race, you say these people don't need to really learn how to read and write. They don't really need to eat so much because anyway, they are half starved people. You know, they're used to famines. So you can um, reduce the amount of wealth, the share of wealth that they get from the wealth they've produced. And that creates a situation of quote unquote backwardness. That's colonialism. And that's the moment in 1947 in India, 1959 in Ghana. That's the moment that these new governments take charge of their people. It's not from a condition of wealth. In fact, it's from a condition of great poverty with their wealth taken to aggrandize countries quite far away. I mean, what would, what would England have been? Little tiny England and its shires. What would England have been without Africa, without Asia, without the Caribbean? Uh, not much really, not much at all. The anti-colonial forces began to gather and talk to each other. You know, one of the early meetings was in Brussels in 1927-28. When they began to share ideas, it became pretty clear. They were all basically by 1927 in agreement that their countries needed to have political sovereignty. In other words, the people needed to be able to elect their own leaders. Pretty simple democratic concept. It's not, you know, anything complicated. It's not, you don't need Marxism for that. You, you actually need the theorists of liberalism, uh, who many of them worked in the colonial services. John um, Stuart Mill, for instance, worked in the colonial services. Um, Jeremy Bentham uh, was involved in the colonial enterprise. Um, Lord Thomas Malthus was a professor of, um, of the officials who went to the colonies. You know, these people had a liberal sensibility one way or the other. It's hard to call ben Jeremy Bentham a real liberal. I mean, he was pretty fixated on surveillance. But anyway, liberals love surveillance. So there's that. Um, at any rate, political sovereignty, that was one. But then they said, look, that's not sufficient. That's what later Fanon calls flag independence. But they need economic sovereignty. Kwame Nkrumah uh, seized on this from the 1945 Pan-African Conference held in Manchester, seized on the idea of economic sovereignty. How do countries whose economy has been crafted to aggrandize um, the colonial master, how do these colonies take charge of themselves? There's no capital. How are they going to invest in industry for their own country? How are they going to be able to take their raw materials, make it into finished products, and not just export raw materials and import finished products, you know, which whose terms of trade constantly, um, you know, uh, make the countries of the colonies and then former colonies in a disadvantageous position. 
So the question of economic sovereignty, very important. Then the issue of cultural sovereignty. You know, colonialism wasn't just about politics and economics. It was about culture. People were made to feel that they were secondary. They were backward. They were not advanced people. They were not modern. Um, they were traditional and so on. So how do you create a cultural sovereignty without you know, being narrow-minded about culture? How do you say, look, we've taken lots of great things uh, in our interaction with the West? After all, if you go back several hundred years, the West itself became the West through its interaction with the Arab world, through its interaction with Asia. Um, you know, it was great thinkers uh, like Ibn Rushd and Ibn Sina and Moses Maimonides that bring a kind of new thinking that kickstarts, um, you know, the, the Renaissance in, in Europe. Humanism, it comes from this Mediterranean conversation. So many of the leaders in the new third world countries were also thinking, look, we don't want to have a re reaction to Western concepts. We don't want to say we reject the West. We want to say we want cultural sovereignty. We'll take what we need. Maybe it's scientific developments. Maybe it's some ideas of, of modern civilization. But we have our own resources as well. We should be proud of them. So part of the third world project was a kind of cultural resilience, you know, not rejection of the West, turning back to the past and so on. Um, the great Peruvian Marxist, Jose Carlos Mariategui, put this really well in 1928. Um, he said, the past is a resource. It's not a destination. You don't want to return to the past. You want to use the past to go forward. Maybe it means borrowing from other traditions and so on. So this third world project is actually quite a sophisticated, you know, set of theoretical and practical ideas. Theoretical, of course, because they're thinking, again, theoretically about what is the nature of an economy? What's the nature of the world economy? You know, they're thinking very in a very sophisticated way, but also practically, what do we do with building our own industry? Do we need to create tariffs? Do we need subsidies? Um, do we need to have what was called import, um, in, in, you know, import substitution, industrialization, those goods that we import, toothpaste? For God's sake, does, um, does Zambia need to import toothpaste from Britain, you know, through at the time Lever Brothers? Or can Southern Africa create a, a kind of home products industry, a chemical industry to facilitate that. Um, can we stop imports uh, through tariffs and through subsidization, create domestic industry? These are very practical things. So this third world project was quite, you know, it was visionary. It had a great vision of what was possible. It was theoretical because they had to think what is the nature of something like a world economy, but also extremely practical. And I find that very robust, you know, very rarely in world history do you get all these elements coming together of a vision, you know, of, of, of a theory of, of what the world should look like. And then the practical aspects of it, all of them coming together. You know, the book took a lot of effort to organize because it's a world history. But I also wanted, I also understood that you can't write world history at the scale of the world alone. You have to also capture the essence of national histories. So you got to write this at multiple levels. So there are lots of sections in the book which are effectively about particular issues. Like, for instance, the issue of cultural sovereignty. That issue is rooted in the story of Iran. 
um, I decided to root it largely in an Iranian story, the story of people like Jalal Ali Ahmed, who wrote a book called Gharab Zadagi. It's rooted in Farooq Farooqzad, the great poet and actress. Um, then the section on, um, on economics is rooted around the figure of Raul Prebich with Argentina at its heart and so on. So the book had to be written not at some macro scale, you know, just telling the third world thing at an abstract level, but I needed to root it in national stories because in fact, it's in the, it's in the nation, it's in the anti-colonial national project that the third world project comes to life. It's animated at that level. So the book has multiple scalar kind of, of it's a very complicated structure. And I also divided it into three parts as well. Uh, the first part is effectively what the project was, you know, the origin and the project itself. And I tried to set up and establish what is that project? Well, these elements, political sovereignty, economic sovereignty, cultural sovereignty, and so on. The second part of the book, um, in a sense, is building on that. You know, what were some of the trials and tribulations, the difficulties, you know, that were there. And the third part of the book is effectively the assassination. I use the term assassination. Well, if you look at the second and third part of the book, I look at different features, you know, of the second part is of the complexities. You know, for instance, each of these countries, as they tried to establish political, economic sovereignty, they received an enormous amount of counter pressure, um, counter pressure largely coming from the former colonial powers led in this case by the United States. So there's an entire chapter on coup d'etats, um, the number of coups against governments, which were basically some of them merely social democratic, the government of Jacob Arbenz in Guatemala overthrown 1954, the government of Mohammed Mossadegh of Iran overthrown 1953, go forward, the socialist government of Salvador Allende overthrown 1973. What was Allende trying to do? Allende said, Chilean copper should be for the Chilean people. That's all he said. He, he wasn't saying anything more than that. What was Arben saying? Guatemala's land is for the Guatemalan people. What was Mohammed Mossadegh saying? Iran's oil is for the Iranian people. I mean, this is just the establishment of economic sovereignty, but it was not to be permitted. The United States understood that if all the countries of the third world start establishing the economic sovereignty, it would put pressure on the profit-taking habits of the North, which had become essentially addicted to super profits from the third world. So one of the causes of failure was extraneous, was because they found uh, adversaries willing to go to horrible lengths to destroy these, these experiments. Argentina, tiny country, the junta backed by the West killed 30,000 people, including drugging young students taking them in airplanes and helicopters and dropping them alive into the Atlantic Ocean. I mean, this is a history that some people remember, but not enough people know. Indonesia, 1965, one million people of the left were just executed. One million people. An entire political party was wiped out. Later, the Israeli sociologist Baruch Kimmeling, talking about Israeli politics versus the Palestinians, coins the term politicide. That's exactly what it was. This was not genocide. They didn't kill a people in Indonesia, but they killed the left. It's a form of politicide. Sadly, this is not a crime um, in any international 
um, you know, law, but it should be. I mean, the wiping out of an entire political community in Indonesia. Until today, Marxism is banned in Indonesia. So one cause of the failure was extraneous, but then there were internal causes that were a problem. One of them was there simply wasn't enough capital. So they had to borrow from their old, old colonial masters. They had to borrow in currencies such as the dollar and the pound, and then later, you know, the franc and so on. Most of the African states, Francophone states, uh, continued to use the French franc after 1960, when France withdrew from Africa. And they had to keep their assets in the Banque de France in Paris. That means you are an independent country, but you're using the French currency and you're keeping your gold reserves in France. I mean, it's not really independence. This hampered the ability of these countries to advance a process forward. Um, they couldn't industrialize, couldn't access capital. And when they did access capital, it was as debt. And then they got hit after 1979 when Paul Volcker, the head of the US um, uh, Federal Reserve, lifted precipitously the interest rates in the US to, in a sense, you know, it was like a, it was like that heart machine, you know, defibrillation on the economy because the United States was in a period of stagflation, combined stagnation and inflation. And so they lifted the interest rates precipitously. Well, they did this. What it meant was all the debt servicing payments ballooned for the third world and countries went into a long period of debt. Um, that was the second, this kind of semi-internal cause. Um, then there were, you know, our own problems. When the British left India, for instance, um, or left other countries, they left behind states where people were simply didn't have the skills to manage and run um, the apparatus because everybody fled. You know, the British left in, in Rhodesia, the uh, whites left as soon as the countries got independence. And there was no process of training and so on. So also there were people coming into state power with from poverty and corruption sets in. It's a normal thing. You know, you come from a poor family. Suddenly you have power over other people. There's going to be some corruption. This erodes the, um, the goodwill of these state projects. That plays a role. There's a host of these. You know, we can go on for a long time. But principally, violence and the debt crisis were the principal cause of the failure of the third world project. These are the two. And then there is a whole other bunch of what I would think of as secondary causes, including corruption. I wrote this book from both frustration and the need to tell a certain story. Um, then I wrote a, a second volume, the, what we might call volume two, called The Poorer Nations, uh, A Possible History of the Global South, which goes back and picks up the story from the 1970s, takes it to 2013. In fact, I'm working on volume three now which will be called the Brighter Nations, which is going to pick up the story from 2007. For some reason, I can't get chronologies exact. That's because dynamics are different. They're not perfectly, you know, they don't match up perfectly. You got to go back to understand further. You know, rhythms of history aren't neat. They are actually messy. So the third volume starts in 2007. It's about the new mood in the South. Um, I don't know what this contributes to the literature as such. Um, I hope that this is, you know, spurred people to take seriously um, some of these political experiments. You know, these were not failures. You know, because something didn't work doesn't mean the project was a failure. 
this is something I'm quite insistent upon. Um, you can have a good idea, but it's not allowed to work for all kinds of reasons. Um, it's not that the idea itself was fated to fail. I don't believe it. I believe that some of these extraneous pressures contributed to, to the failure. Um, but I, I also am interested, you know, very. it's important to me to say what I wrote about is the history. It can't be revived without mediations. The times are different. The world economy is different. And that's why I've been interested in tracking these changes. You know, volume one was the period uh, from before I was born to when I was a teenager. Uh, I was born in 1967. The book ends roughly in the 1980s. Um, the second volume starts again in the 1970s. The Poorer Nations starts with the Brand Commission report and then goes to 2013, roughly 2010, 2013. And the third volume picks up from 2007, the great financial crisis and goes forward. I mean, in a way, I'm, I'm fascinated with, with the way the story has been unfolding. Um, and, you know, I'm reminded a little bit about other attempts to write this kind of world history, um, like Eric Hobsbawm's accounts of, of the modern world, you know, that starts with the revolutions, the age of revolutions, the French Revolution onward, and the, the age of industry. You know, uh, Hobsbawm has a certain, you know, long-term perspective of the history that he lived through in a way. But of course, mine is a very different history because his was still rooted in Europe. And it was Europe's story and the world. My story doesn't begin in Europe. My story, in fact, begins far from Europe. It begins in the Congo. It begins in the Amazon. It begins in the Ganges.